0: Thanks, Jed. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good morning. Oh, there are a few people in here. Yeah. A number of... Oh, it actually seems like weeks. It was actually a few months ago now. Um, Something sort of changed a little bit in my life that got me thinking along some of the way the lines that I'm starting. I'm going to share about today. Um, But a bit of a backstory. I am really, really short-sighted. Well, that means that you know, I anything at a distance, I. I I see it very, very poorly and if I didn't have any vision correction, um, I wouldn't be able to probably... I wouldn't see the detail on Rachel and Michael's faces who were that close to me at the moment. And... um, I, well, I first worked out that I was short-sighted when I was in my twenties. I was in the, in America with Gwen and um, a couple of other people from the church, and we were at a conference in Kansas City. And they had those it was a big church. There's a massive screen, still in the days of overhead projectors, so show my age. So there's this, this stuff up there. I remember turning to the guy beside me and going, "Ah, oh, we should get that app together and get that thing focused properly." <laughs> and Paul turned to me and goes. How do you see that? I went, no. So he pulled his glasses off his face and handed them to me. <laughs> so "Airport, put these on. I stuck them on. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> he just laughed. And anyway, I came back and went and visited the optometrist. And yes, sure enough. So I've been wearing glasses to correct my distance vision ever since. Now I'm a little way past my 20s now. Just a little. <laughs> yeah. And um, I have noticed, particularly over recent times, that my vision is getting worse and worse, especially when I'm tired. The thing is, though, I'm a little bit unusual. Despite the fact that I'm over 50, my close-up vision is perfect. So the closer I'm not this person, the closer it is, the the, the, the better I see. Now, the problem with that really is my job. (laughs) Well, one of my jobs. I'm an intensive care nurse. Now, that might not mean a lot to you, but in my work... Um, I'm reading monitors a lot, and they're often a distance... There's usually a couple of them, but they're usually, you know... Quite a, a number of feet away, and I'm not just reading numbers. I'm, I'm reading waveforms, and I need to be able to see them. And they're often green, and red, and yellow, and who knows how well those show up sometimes, particularly at night. Um, but then, so they're up in the distance. But then, closer to me, maybe about you know, for me and Rach and Ben away, um, I might have a ventilator screen. I need to be able to read that too. Yeah, and I've got a patient in the bed, and but then I've got to drop my vision down and I've got documentation in front of me where I need to be recording stuff all the time. So the difficulty with somebody with like vision like mine is I've had my glasses on and off my head and I couldn't see, and I have, if I had them off, I couldn't see over there, and if I had them on, I couldn't see here. It's driving me crazy. So anyway, I finally went to my optometrist and said, We tried a few things, look, this isn't working for me. So he says, you know what, let's try contact lenses. I'm like, "Mm, okay, all right, because multifocal things didn't work for me at all. And so we did that. So what we've ended up with, though, is because my close-up vision is so good and my distance vision is so bad, I have one lens that's set for distance, so, if I, particularly if I shut my eye, my other lens, I, I, what, I don't know how they work, you know, what their percentages, where their points are, but just for a, for example, if this was a minus 10, my other eye, this one here, is corrected to like a minus 2. And the reason for that is I need to be able to change my focus or my perspective very, very quickly. There was one day when I lost one of my lenses, this one, my right eye, which is probably fortunate because it's my left eye, this is before I had a whole set of them, my left eye is the one that's set for vision. So I went to work and you know what, I coped actually quite well. I could actually see in the distance quite well with only one eye probably properly corrected. And the reason for that is that our brains have this incredible way of working out. They get the information from this side and the information from this side and then they mix it together to give a perspective that works. It's just amazing, really. So I could have one eye corrected and actually see properly in the distance. I got more fatigued and I'm better with two, but that's basically how it works. So this fascinated me in lots of ways. How Our brains are just to do this incredible thing where they work it out with just one eye corrected. So I started to think more and more and more about vision. Not the church word vision, but the seeing word (laughs) vision, and really what it was kind of all about. And more and more and more I've begun to understand that the eyes might be the organ of the sight, but not of perception. That's the brain's job. So the eye lets the information in, but how it's processed... Is entirely up to this thing. I want to prove a point for a sec. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, flick it back. Give it back. <laughs> Never mind. For some reason, it's insisted on having the red lines in. But oh heck, I should just leave it there for a sec. See that picture up the top there. Which lines? They both look. They look a different distance apart, don't they? But actually, they're not. They're exactly the same length, depending on how your eye processes it. All right. Next one. Thank you. What can you see? A donkey or a seal? There's no kangaroo there, dudes. (laughs) There's a donkey or a seal. Who can see a seal? Who can see a donkey? Who can see both? Who can see neither? (laughs) Okay. The seal, here's his head here, tails up there. Donkey, eye, nose, ears. Okay, next one. How many people in this picture? Who can see two people? Who can see two people knowing that they probably should be able to see more because you've worked out how this is going? How how many can see two people? How many can see more? Where's the third person? There's a baby. For those of you who can't see it, there's its feet. you see it? It's on its back. And there is its nose and mouth and hands. It's almost like an ultrasound of a neutero. That's a big baby, yeah. Point is, there's three people in that picture. Okay, next one. Thanks, Daniel. Frog or horse? Frog? Horse? Who sees frog? Who sees horse? Who can see both? For those of you who can't, horse mane, eye, nose, frog to me is very easy frog mouth sitting on a something or other okay. yeah oh, 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 oh. okay thanks daniel next one okay stare at this one stare at this one for just about 30 seconds or so and tell me what happens Has it disappeared for anybody? <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. Might be harder to see because it sh- it's flickering. But anyway, if you look at it for long enough, it disappears. Ah, back what? Next one. Where's the cat? Can anybody see the cat? Can anybody not see the cat? Although you've already got Okay, thanks Daniel. of body says Jared. There he is, up the top there. All right, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, my point is perception. We're all looking at the same image. Some of us see one thing, some of us see the other, some of us can see both, some of us can see one for a minute and then we move our heads and we have a little think about it, Uh, we can see the other. There's this idea that basically it's because our brains are actually really good at actually flipping between two equally plausible hypotheses about what they're looking at. Um, But sometimes it's unable to decide between them. So that's how fickle we are sometimes. Sometimes we have be getting this information and our brain can decide and can flip backwards and forwards about what it is that we're actually looking at. Did you know that they've got surgery now that can actually completely repair blindness in some congenitally blind people? But what they have discovered is that even if they replace corneas and lenses and all all the actual functional bits and pieces of the eye, for some of these people, if they've been born blind, doesn't change a thing. Technically and physically they can see. But their brains just can't work it out. And they are still just as blind. Still just as blind. I have been thinking about a guy in the Bible recently. I started thinking about him for a, a particular reason and then actually realised it was probably actually the wrong guy. But I've been thinking about Gehazi. Anybody know who Gehazi is? Who is he? He's a servant of Elisha. So remember there was those famous prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah was the first one. Elisha was the second one. Elisha, the second one with the S, he was the servant of Elijah, the first one. The whole time Elijah was in ministry. And then when he went off to be, he was actually got taken up to heaven. And he said something really interesting. He was with, he wouldn't leave him. The others left him. Elisha refused to leave him. And he goes, what do you want? He goes, God, I want a double, um, Master, I want a double portion. And his boss said to him, if you see me go, then it's yours. He saw Elijah being taken to heaven on the, on, on the, on the Lord's chariot, basically. And he got the double portion, which wasn't quite how we think of it as exactly double the anointing. But he got more than his fair share, basically, of all the people who were apprenticed to the old Elijah, so that was, he was kind of like a special place, the number one guy. And then when he was in ministry, he had his own servant, this person called Gehazi. And there was quite a number of things happened. But one day, there was somebody that came to visit this guy, Elisha. His name was Naaman. And the story's in 2 Kings chapter 5. I won't read the whole thing, but Naaman was a big deal. He was a general in the Aramean army, I think it was Aramean. Anyway, one of the opposing armies, but he was a big, 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 big deal. He got leprosy, incurable of course in those days and meant that you know he lost everything basically. Anyway, he had a little servant girl in his house who was a captive from Israel and told him there's a prophet in Israel that can sort that out for you. So this guy shows up, comes to visit and... While he, and when he, she arrives at where Elisha is, Elisha doesn't even see him. Sends his servant out, Gehazi, to tell this big, big, big dude, big deal, go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times and she'll be right. Anyway, Naaman was pretty cranky about that and some of his servants talked him into it in any way, of course. Um, he did it and um, he got healed because so he went off on a big snitch basically. Got healed, went back to Elisha and said, I want to pay you you whatever I've got, whatever you've got. And uh, Elisha absolutely refused to take anything. Sent him away. Says, no, I don't need it. I don't want it. Go off. And they made an agreement about the fact that this guy Naaman was now going to be a worshipper and a follower of the one true living God. However... The story tells us, So I mean, Elisha sends him off. The story tells us quite a way through. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, the Aramean, by not accepting from him what he bought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So he hurried after him, told a lie, gets some stuff, takes it back, hides it. This boss challenges him, says, where have you been? Nowhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> he called him on it and, he, and his, his boss says this to him. Elijah says, he says, Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Gehazi went out from his presence and he had become white as snow. Is this the time? thing is, Gehazi had been by this time, as far as we can tell, with Elisha for years. So what happened? It doesn't seem possible that all of a sudden, all of a sudden he's suddenly going to have this one moment of overwhelming temptation. And it sounds like as Naaman's getting further and further away, this thing, we all know this thing too, don't we? <laughs> this thing was winding up in front of him, building up to that point. You, who has never felt that? Are you all totally zen, totally chill? Yeah? I want to be honest if you've never felt that, okay. But I have a suspicion that more than me has various times where, where the, the thing that builds up to him, oh, I'm going to... And in the end, Naaman couldn't help it anymore, ran after him and does this thing. Thing is that thing. That thing inside of him didn't just arrive there that minute. It had been something that had been growing or had been untreated. It was building up over quite some time. And if you go back in the story of Kings, there's a few stories about Gehazi that start to shed a bit of light on this. Um, one of them is about a person called the Shumanite woman who was a well-to-do, like a wealthy woman who looked after Elisha and his servants seemingly, made this, all sorts of special arrangements for them and um, as a thanks, she, had, she was barren, she had no children, her husband was old, um, Elisha prayed and she had a son. Anyway, this child, um, when he was old enough, so who knows, you know, obviously older than little, went out to see his dad in the fields, went, oh, my head, my head. And um, they send him back to his mother. He sat on his mother's lap for a few hours and then he died. And the nurse and me goes, oh, <laughs> aneurysm or something's happened. Nasty in his head. Um, he died. And so this woman, she doesn't say anything. She takes him upstairs, lies him on the prophet's bed, walks out, Says to her husband I'm going to see the prophet oh, What for it's not the Sabbath It doesn't matter it's okay Gets on it tells the servant don't stop for anything And while she's afar off Elisha sees her Says that's like the Shemite woman it Says to Gehazi Go and see what she wants He goes to her And says is everything alright With your husband is everything alright with your child And she goes to Gehazi yeah, Everything's okay she gets to Elisha, falls down and grabs at his feet. And Gehazi tries to pull her away. And he says, no, Elisha says, no, she's really distressed and God hasn't told me why. So then she says, did you not promise me this child? She doesn't even say that he's dead. She says, did you not? So Elisha straight away tests Gehazi, Tuck your clothes up, take my staff and run, lay my staff on the child's face. So Gehazi does that, runs. We're talking desert running too. Who knows what day, time of the day or night it was. Some distance as the woman had travelled on a donkey while the woman and Elisha travelled behind. So Elisha does that. He goes to this kid. He lays the staff on his face and nothing happens. No response. He comes back to Elisha and says, hasn't woken up. Elisha goes in, shuts the door, prays, does a few things anyway. Eventually the child wakes up, sneezes seven times and is totally whole. So poor old, so poor old Gehazi has told – this woman has just basically disregarded him. She's okay. It's all right. No one talked to you. Being rebuked by his master because he's trying to pull her off. Being sent running a long way in the desert – to do this job, nothing happens. He's probably thinking, ah, oh, now's my chance. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the man. I'm going to have him do a miracle. Yeah, didn't happen. Didn't happen. The boss comes, prays, the miracle happens. Soon after that, as far as the story chronologically goes, Moses, there's a whole bunch of them around. Um, Elisha says to his, his um, servant, um, Cook some food for everybody. And we don't know who it was, but somebody, whether it was him or somebody else, it probably doesn't really matter, collected something that was absolutely poisonous. And servant Gehazi puts it in the pot, cooks a stew for everybody. They take one mouthful and go, Master, there's poison in the pot. We can't eat this. So Elisha sorts it out, throws some flour and does a miracle and heals the food. So here's poor old Gehazi now, doing as he's told, and now he's just about poisoned everybody. I mean, this guy can't catch a break. And then there's a 100 people that needs to be fed, and Elisha said to him, feed them. You think Jesus did it first? No, Elisha did. Feed them. And he goes, oh, I, can't, I can't do that. And Elisha says, yeah, you can, we can, and... They did. They had enough bread to feed these hundred people. So over and over and over and over again, it just doesn't seem to be working for Gehazi. And then the next chapter over, we get this detailed story about Naaman and we read about the corruption of this man. But it didn't happen overnight. And the thing I've been thinking about is, you know, what was it? Resentment and patience. I'd love to know how Gehazi saw God. Who was God to Gehazi? I think Gehazi saw him as the God of Elijah. Gehazi saw him as Elisha's God. He can't really have seen him as his God. He just can't have. He can't have seen God the who he really was. That or he wasn't willing to keep himself in the place and really put himself in the place and and let his own attitudes and let his perspectives and let his bitterness and let his desire for success or let his desire for acknowledgement... Let, it, let any of that die to the point where one day he could be the one that Elisha passes, pa- Elisha passes the mantle on He wasn't going to do that. And so much of it, I believe, had to be for how he saw God. Because in that day, the spirit of the Lord was really only on one person at a time most of the time, and Elisha was kind of it. And does Gehazi thinking, does Elisha and God own him? So he finally gets to chapter 5. God and, 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 and Elisha, they owe me. They owe me. I deserve this. And that has to be how he's been thinking because he didn't get it for his boss. He got it for himself. I deserve this. I'm owed this. I'm owed it. Which was obviously so, so, so wrong. And you know, how would we be? How are we? How are we in the waiting? How are we when things don't quite work out for us? How are we when ministry fails? How are we when our sacrifice goes unacknowledged? How are we when our hardest and best efforts fall flat? How are we when our praying and our praying and our praying and our praying seem to bear very little fruit? How are we? Do we get to the point where we start to say, God, you owe me. You owe me. In 2 Kings, and then when you get to chapter 6, there's another servant whose name we aren't given. If it's chronologically out of order, it could be Gehazi, but I don't think it is. There's somebody else, another servant. And now they're being surrounded. There's all the enemies have come. There's many, 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 many of them. And two kings. And this young guy is terrified. And he says so to his boss. And Elisha says to him in 2 Kings 6, chapter 16, Do not be afraid, Elisha answered. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. Uh, the Aramaic Bible, the, the, with the English, says, calls him a boy, so very young. And he saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I don't know what the difference was with this young guy, but we do know that God answered the prayer of Elisha. Open his eyes, Lord, so he can see. The prayer of the old, so that the young can see. The prayer of the elder, so that the younger can see. The prayer of the older, so that the younger can see God. I'm of a generation now where I'm longing to see more for the next generation than's ever been for mine. Far more. Joel, chapter two, verse 28 says this, Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And one version says your elders, the ladies, us two, will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Let me read that again. And that, uh, then after doing all these things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men, your elders will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. They will. You know what? I would like to believe when we're talking about our young men and our young women prophesying that it's not really just talking about words. Words. It's talking about them living prophetically. It's not talking about them just standing up and stand, standing in a church, proclaiming the word of the Lord. That is great, but kind of useless in some ways, as we're all here already. It's not necessarily standing out there on a street corner, because then you just look a bit nuts. Nobody's really listening anyway. But I actually really believe that it's because it's not enough. It's not enough for our young men and our young women to be prophesying. It's not enough for them to just to be doing it in the church. It has to be happening out there. I believe that the real truth of this is around young men and young women who are living prophetically, who live prophetically. Ben talked last week. If you didn't hear it, go and listen to it. Right. Really, honestly. But he talked about the woman, Mary, almost certainly, with the alabaster box, who walked into this room full of men, cracked open all she had, poured the perfume over Jesus' head. And Jesus said to them, She, she has done this thing. She's anointed me for my burial. She didn't even know what she was doing. She didn't know how prophetic she was being. She did it without really understanding it. She didn't really know who Jesus was. None of them really did. But something in her recognised that he was a whole lot more than he seemed to be. So much more than they could see. She took an opportunity without really understanding what she was doing. And you know what? Let's not just be people, young, young, and I'm talking young people who are, let's say, below the age of 40 these days. You know what? 40 is the new 30. We're not old until the fat lady sings, basically. But for those of you who are still a lot, lot younger, this is for you. Do not be the people who hang out with the man of God, but he's not really your God. If If we haven't experienced him, we don't get it. Instead, we live just waiting for our time in the sun waiting for it to be about me. we we we're Gehazis. We're living with this person, hanging around with this person who's doing incredible miracles and inside us because we've got undealt with issues and undealt with sin and we haven't seen God. We haven't met Him. We are turning into this cesspit of bitterness and resentment and one day that thing will bite you. One day, if you're just going to be hanging out with the people of God. And he's not going to be your God. It's the job of the elders in the church to dream dreams. And to pray that God will open the eyes of the young. Elders in the church. I'm not talking about the board either. I'm talking about the elders in the church Spiritually mature, and I know some of you have laid your lives down doing this. I'm here because of people, and one of them, a couple of them, are sitting here, committed to pray for me week in, week out, week in, week out, when I was a long way away from God. I'm here because people prayed, God, open our eyes. Who are you praying for? Who's on your list? Who are you covenanting with God to pray for week in, week out, week in, week out until God actually does something and opens their eyes so that they can see the power and the glory around them? Praying for the young ones in our church, the young young families, the young parents, the young Christians, I challenge you. To be the Elisha who says, God, open their eyes. Because when the, 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 we're in the day where the Spirit has been poured out. We haven't seen the end of this yet. There is definitely a time of latter rain that we have not seen, that we are waiting for, that we are seeking God for. But surely, surely we're in a time where our young people can be ones who live prophetically. Who walk out there and don't see things really as we think they are, but have a perspective that has been tuned into the mind and the heart of God. Because there's other people in a church who are on their faces before God saying, God, let them see. Let them see. But it's not just the responsibility of the older to pray for the younger. We've kind of got to do a little bit of it ourselves. Psalm 119 verse 18 says this. This is in the King James, but this is how I learned it. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Open thou my eyes. Lord, open my eyes. We sung this this morning. Rachel didn't know what I was sharing. I didn't even look at her song list. God, open our eyes. Open our eyes. Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes. But it's not just so that we can see an opportunity. It says that I may behold wondrous things out of my law. Are we going to our Bible and saying, God, open my eyes? Are we just expecting the revelation and the presence and the understanding of who God really is to just bounce out of the sky and land in our laps? I teach university students, adults, supposedly, um, and it drives me, doesn't drive, I've got used to it now actually, so it's a long way, it used to drive me crazy, now I just accept it. But I tell them, guys, I can't microchip you with all the information and all the understanding that I have gained over many, many years of playing this game and my more than one university degree and all my experience doesn't work that way. I'm trying to teach you how to think like an RN, you know, and some of them really get that. But others, uh, they just, they, they, it's like, tell me what I need to do to pass this assessment. That, that's all they, they want. There's no desire or energy put in by some What a few sometimes, to actually apply themselves to gaining knowledge of understanding, not just so they can pass an assessment, not just so they can look all right on a Sunday, but so they can actually aim for excellence as an RN one day in the future. It's a whole lot more than just passing an assessment. And that is my passion that I try to give out to these, these, um, these adults sometimes. Guys, this is not just assessment. God forbid you might actually learn something about being an RN and really doing this job well. But it has to have energy applied. It cannot. It can't just come from me. It has to come from them. It has to be energy applied. If you want to have happen what Rachel led today and what we sung about, the energy has to come from you. It's not. Yes, there is a responsibility for the wider church to pray, to call upon God for you. And I know there's people in this church that do this. I know that there is. But are you going to do it for yourself, young people? Are you going to apply energy and say, God, I don't want you just to be the God of my parents. I don't just want you to be the God of Hope Point. I don't just want to see you be the God of Elisha and Elijah. God, be my God. I don't want to understand what it is that Ben's talking about when he's up there. Or Rachel, God, open my eyes. I want to see you. But also you have to be looking at wondrous things out of his law. You're going to the, old, the Bible's old-fashioned now. It's not real popular. But unless you are going, we are going, I am going to the word of the Lord and saying, God, open my eyes so that I can see amazing things, it's not going to happen. It really isn't. You know, that means when we open ourselves up, it's actually we have to humble ourselves ourselves. We have to tilt our heads a different way. Change our lenses. We have to humble ourselves under God's hand to accept that what we might think might not be the truth, capital T. Isn't that a shocker? (laughs) What you might think, what you think, I mean, I I know, I know, it's a dreadful thing to have to say from the pulpit. (laughs) But newsflash, everything that you think is not right. I'm sorry. That offends you. I'm sorry. My husband's not here, unfortunately. He doesn't get the benefit of that piece of wisdom. But <laughs> I'm kidding, but I'm not. Everything that you think is not the truth. Everything I think is not the truth. It's not right. But the only way that we grow in this presence and this knowing of God and the only way we grow our church to have a bunch of people, the young and the old, who actually see God and live prophetically is if we have a bunch of people willing to humble themselves before God and say, God, open my eyes when I look at your words that you can change my thinking so that I can understand truth about people, and about my circumstances, and about who I am, and about what you want, and about the people that are surrounding me when they drive me nuts. God, what's your truth? Open my eyes. Open my eyes. The word has to be the word, has to be prayer. There's no new tricks. Understanding how we might see a person or a situation is not the reality, and it takes risk but the risk not to is now i think becoming greater and greater it's not a day when we can be doing it for ourselves like elisha said to gehazi is this the day to be seeking clothes and money in vineyards i don't think so it's not the day to be seeking our own thing it's scary it is scary to you don't want to be left out or left alone because we are riding on the coattails of somebody else's relationship with God. My vision's got worse as I've got older. Our vision cha- fades with time. So this isn't a one-type place deal. There's one other place where, you know what, our vision's incredibly clear. We sing about it in old songs. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, I was blind, and now I see. It's a thing of grace. It is the grace of God that opens our eyes and answers the prayer. It is God's incredible unmerited favor. We are so asked when we humble ourselves and say, God, uh, nothing unless you move on me and in me. There's another old song that says, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away. It's not a one-time deal, even for Christians. We need to keep coming back to the cross, keep coming back to the place of our salvation, keep coming back to the place of grace and saying again, Lord, I need to know you. Lord, I need your blood to wash away the heinous thinking I have sometimes and to open my eyes. If you're here today and you've never yet met this Jesus at the cross and know what it means to have this sense that you've come home and know what it means to feel like you can suddenly see and you get it, then today's your day. Today is your day. Stacey, would you just mind playing keys just for a moment? Thank yeah. you. Is there anybody here who has never yet come to the cross, met this Jesus who's able to do incredible things and able to do miracles, change your thinking and change your life? Is there anybody here like that who would like to say today's the day? No, that's okay. For the rest of us, let's just take a minute. You do your own business with God. Whatever that is, I'm not going to tell you. Do you need to start to say, God, open my eyes so I can see wondrous things in your word. God, I give you permission to change my thinking. God, I commit to laying down before you and crawling out to you that the young people in our church will have incredible encounters with you and live prophetically. God, open my eyes. Your business with God, it's yours and it's mine. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, we cry out to you that it's not just words in a song, words on a page. Lord, we humble ourselves before you to say, God, we know that there are places in our thinking that are so wrong, that are like sacred cows, and they need to be put in their right place. So we give you permission, Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes so that we can see you and know you, really know you. God, move upon our young people, move upon our young adults, move upon our teenagers, move upon our new Christians. God, we call out to you that you would open their eyes so they can see that there is more for us than against us, that they can see the power of God in this day and in this generation. Lord, we call upon your name. Father, in the name of Jesus, we call upon your name that this would be a church of people who live in your ways and live in your word and live in your power so that we are ones who take many, many, many with us. God forbid that we be sidelined or taken out because you're still just the God of Elisha. We thank you for it, Lord. Amen.